Amen, amen. Oh, holy Lord, receive this worship as an offering unto you, Lord God. We give you all glory. We give you all praise. You are the reason why we're here, Lord Jesus. We love you so much. In your holy name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Man, I'm excited to be here. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, I, you know, I, so I listened online. I listened to some sermons. Uh, your pastor is great. You guys are so lucky to have him. Um, I just, what I think is, it shouldn't surprise me, but what does surprise me a little bit is how similar our churches are. Just the, the, the worship, you guys, the way you guys were like worshiping and I could hear you singing and stuff. And this is something that you may, you may know or you may not know, but it's how rare that is. Um, the, the church you have here where you're singing passionately in worship and you love the Lord and you're here for the right reasons and you don't have a whole bunch of fluff and things to draw people in like the world tries to draw them in, that the idea that you're here is to worship God and just be in his presence is rare in a church. You guys have something great here. And so you need to invite your friends and family. You need to talk to the cashier at the grocery store because people need to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit and you have it here. So bring them in. This is, it's uh, refreshing and exciting. So first, I want to introduce my lovely wife, Pastor Shelley. You could stand or not stand. Don't stand. She's up here. If you want to see her, she'll be up here later. Um, uh, Shelly and I uh, and Pastor Matt and Pastor Crystal Kirchunis and another couple planted Faith and Victory Church 18 years ago, 2003 it was, and uh, with just the six of us and our kids, and uh, it's grown. We were in an elementary school in Kent for about a year, and then someone who was attending our church worked in a commercial building over on West Valley Highway, so we were there for like another 10 years or something along those lines. And then from there, we moved over to A Street to a church on A Street to a, a building um, similar to this over on A Street. And we've been there since 14, 2014, 2015. Anyways, we've been there a while. So um, we've been doing ministry there. I've been ordained since 2010. Um, I am a, a firefighter in Redmond. Um, I'm a captain up there in Redmond, and I've been doing that for about 19 years. Um, before that, I was in the Marine Corps for a few years, and so I don't know what else. I got two kids, a 22-year-old girl and a 19-year-old boy, and uh, the boy said he had to go to Faith and Victory this morning and represent for the Alexander family since we were going to be here, so that's why he's not here. He wanted to have representation. Um, I like going on uh, missionary trips. And so I've been doing that for a little while. And so I, I love to go out and see the world. And just uh, America is such a weird place when it comes to Christianity and Christ. And, and uh, I, I think it's because we have so much wealth and affluence. I think that um, we can end up getting a little distracted from the meaning of, all, meaning of it all and, and the foundation of it all. Clearly not in this church. But, but it's out there. And so to be able to, I've been in Cambodia and Kenya, and I just got back from Ukraine a couple of months ago. And just to see what the global church looks like and, and the focus and the challenges they go through globally, to me is really encouraging because uh, I love to think of the body of Christ as being the global church and more than just here in this country. Um, let me see if I can use this PowerPoint thing. The button in the middle? Let's see if it works. The arrows. 
Ha, it worked. So I was reading an article in Christianity Today. It's called The 50 Countries Where It's Most Dangerous to Follow Jesus in 2021. Uh, The United States did not make the list. I'll just pick it off the top there. But there's some statistics that I thought were very interesting that could help us put uh, our faith and our, our global church in perspective. Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day, 12 churches or church buildings are attacked. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. Every day. Just recently, you may have heard the news, you may not have. 17 um, uh, missionaries were kidnapped in Haiti, like just a couple of months ago. You may not have heard that they escaped. They weren't released, a handful of them were released, but the rest of them actually escaped in the middle of the night. Did remind me of that time where uh, they, uh, that Peter escaped from prison, just kind of walked out of the door, armed gunmen everywhere. You may not have heard it because we put it on page six of the newspaper, because apparently that's not important news, Uh, but I thought it was important. But it's still happening today. The 50 nations uh, on this list of the, uh, the most dangerous places to follow Jesus, 300 million Christians live in these places that have very high or extreme levels of persecution. This includes one in six believers in Africa and two out of five in Asia. This year, for the first time in 29 years of tracking it, all 50 countries qualified as very high or extreme persecution. Actually, 54 did, but they cut it off at 50. Nine in 10 Christians are killed for their faith in Africa. Martyrdom rose 60%. Christian abductions rose 63%. Nigeria leads the world in all of those. In fact, 20 nations are now deadlier for Christians than North Korea. Pakistan, Nigeria, India make the, the, in the top 10 of all the lists as you go down the lists. Um, my point in bringing attention to this is that the persecution we see in the uh, New Testament of the early church still continues today. And although we have a measure of persecution that we feel in, uh, in our country, we can be in prayer for the global church, our family all across the world who are suffering perse- persecution every single day. We had just uh, had lunch with a, Christ- uh, with a Christian missionary from China a few weeks ago, and he was telling me the extreme lengths they go to to avoid the persecution in China, especially this, this day and age with all the cameras and technology. Uh, it, the, the ability to hide from the government in the way that they do to continue to put forth and worship the Lord is amazing to me. And in the United States, sometimes it's so difficult for us to just come in on a Sunday morning. And then when I think of that, I'm encouraged. In their struggle, I'm encouraged in my faith of the, the wealth and the, um, the ability here that I have to worship God and talk about God and serve Jesus. To me, it's super encouraging, and I want you to be encouraged by it too. Now, we're uh, looking in the book of Acts this morning as our verses. Um, we see a massive amount of persecution of the young church. Um, and it, what it did is it, in Jerusalem, the persecution came and it caused the Christians to flee all over the area. So what happened when they fled is they took uh, the, the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ with them and they started preaching it everywhere. And so we see this huge explosion of growth in the church because they're trying to destroy it. Because I bet you know that the more they try to destroy the church, the more it's going to flourish. 
And you can see that when you look at these persecuted countries, the same countries that are persecuted the most are the same countries that have the most explosive growth in Christianity. So the more persecution we have here, good. Because it's going to cause the gospel to explode here. But it's on us to have the courage to send the message out there. In Acts chapter 8, after a great persecution began, Philip uh, went out uh, to Samaria to preach the good news. In Acts chapter 8, verse 14 and 15, it says this. Now when the apostles were... uh, And when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. As the apostle Peter traveled to many towns throughout the countryside, supporting the other scattered believers who had preached the good news, um, he went there reinforcing the message about Christ. They came and did the work of bringing the gospel, and the apostle Peter came to support what they were doing and reinforce that message. Amen? So in today's scripture, uh, Peter has been uh, performing miracles. He performed the miracle of healing on a man who others probably thought uh, and decided were beyond help. When people see the healed man, they turn to the Lord. So the scripture this morning is Acts chapter 9, verse 32 through 35. Now I'm going to move pretty quickly, but that's okay because this message is being recorded. So you can go back and listen to it again. And if you want a copy of my notes, you can have a copy of my notes too. So don't worry, just settle in, it's going to be great. Acts chapter 9 verse 32 says, Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydia. Therefore he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Miracles confirm the message about Christ. Essentially evidence of the message being true. That's why we have miracles. Miracles are something that there's no other explanation for. It is what it is and you see it. And the only explanation for it is that Jesus Christ is real And he's powerful, and we need to turn our lives to the Lord. But the question that comes up to me is, um, if these confirming miracles usher in an an explosive growth of the church, which we see in the New Testament, and we see uh, in this time of Peter, why doesn't God do more miracles today? So the answer I have is this. Internationally, he does. Miracles happen internationally all the time. I'm talking like, healings, limbs growing out, explosive growth, people escaping imprisonment. It happens all the time, and the church is exploding around the world. But locally, in our context, I think of this. Consider the overwhelming evidence all around us. Why should he have to do miracles right now? What what else could you need to confirm the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ for you to believe? I mean, do you want him to just fall down right now and turn around and say, yeah, it's all true? I mean, I think of that. Like Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The reality is, especially here in America, we are without excuse. It's interesting to me. So oftentimes, uh, science and Christianity are pitted against each other as if they're two opposite things, as if they're opposite ends of the spectrum. But watch this. God created everything, right? God created nature. He created everything we see and everything we touch. So as science discovers more and more of what's out there, really, they're just discovering more and more of what God created. So one of the most interesting things to me about it was this, is that uh, some time ago, scientific consensus, I'm talking every scientist, believes in the Big Bang. The Big Bang is something coming from nothing. The Big Bang is one singular event that happened, some kind of explosion where out of nothing came everything, which is something that no one can recreate, that is not seen in any other bit of science. It does not exist. It happened one time where all of a sudden, life exploded out of darkness. What does that sound like to you? Everybody agrees on it. This is what scientists won't agree to, that it was God who did it. They actually have discovered evidence that, that everything in the universe started at one single point and expanded outward. They, they, they have proven this. And, and the idea is that they have proven it as somehow there's another explanation besides God ex- uh, creating things. But to me, it just reconfirms what we've known since the beginning, that God created everything. Out of one point, he created everything. And the more they find out, the more interesting it becomes. Things like irreducible complexity, which means that life in itself, broken down smaller and smaller, eventually is so small that it can't sustain life which means it couldn't have started from something small and turned into what we are today. It is impossible. And all of these things are called a theory because they can't make it work. But what I'm excited about is the more they figure out, the more it just confirms the message. But what I want people to do is I want people to believe in Christ out of faith before it's absolutely 100% positively confirmed by science. So hurry up, people, because they're about to prove it. Everything from the fossil record to everything. So scientifically speaking, there has to be over 100 constants. That means 100, over 100 different things that have to happen all at the same time for life to exist on earth. Imagine, I mean, they're talking right now that if the earth heats up two degrees, that everything's going to be destroyed. So somehow, since the beginning of time, everything has to have been just tightly specifically balanced and pH levels and temperature and everything is just so finitely dialed in for a hundred different things or more just to make this whole thing happen. So the fact that all of those things working together could happen by chance are one with 138 zeros. So to me, it blows me away that someone can have enough faith to believe that that is true, but can't believe in Jesus, who has proven to be true with eyewitnesses. We have all this evidence. We have the New Testament. Did you realize that the New Testament, Luke and the book of Acts, are considered by non-Christian sources to be historically accurate beyond a reasonable doubt, so much that they could be admissible in court as evidence? 
Everything can be proven. It all matches. Everything except for the miracles. You know why the miracles don't match? Because they don't believe that miracles exist. If everything else is true, then the 34 miracles in the book of uh, Luke have to be true too, right? I'm not trying to ruin it for you. I still want you to have this strong faith that Jesus is, you know, sovereign, but also recognize that there is so much overwhelming evidence that you have access to above and beyond just the God's word itself that there's really no reason why anyone should not believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's everywhere. Let's look at verse 33. It says, it says that Aeneas has been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. The Bible doesn't say how he had become paralyzed or what had happened to him in his life. I mean, many of us have experienced life circumstances that have left us feeling paralyzed in pain and fear and self-doubt. I'm not the only one, am I? I mean, it's kind of intrinsic to the human experience, is it not? Some injuries you can see, other injuries, people suffer in silence. It's really easy when you see somebody who's paralyzed to say, oh my gosh, they're, they're hurting, they need help, let's pray for them. But when people are suffering inside with their own sinful nature, with their own brokenness, with their own self-doubt, it is so much more difficult to see that from the outside. Um, so I'm a firefighter. I've been a firefighter for 19 years. Uh, about 10 years ago, um, I went on a really, uh, really bad um, call. And uh, it was really hard. And I don't want to go into too much detail, um, but it had to do with uh, a kid and the same age as my kids who were 13 and 10 at the time. Um, it was traumatic. And it caused what I didn't know at the time, it caused uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I dealt with that for six years. At first, I didn't know what it was, and then I had to discover what it was. And then going through it, I just felt isolated and alone, like nobody understands. I kept going through my life. I kept preaching. I kept serving. I kept going to work, but I hated going to work. I didn't want to be there. I, I just wanted to flee from it. It's the fight or flight mechanism, right? I wanted to uh, flight from work and I wanted to fight everything that was going on. Kids running in the parking lot drive me crazy. I just couldn't do it because I knew the outcome that was possible. I had seen the outcomes that were possible when these situations arise, so I was hypervigilant and just angry and on edge all the time, constantly worrying, bracing for the next big thing, and it just made it harder and harder. I mean, it was a difficult season for our whole, whole family, and I've talked about it in church before, so people know now, but nobody knew then. I mean, a few people said, hey man, what's wrong? It seems like something's wrong. And I would just say, oh, nothing's wrong, everything's good. Um, because I didn't wanna talk about it. I didn't think people would understand. Maybe you can relate to that concept on some level of dealing with something very difficult and very hard and emotional and traumatic to you that you just don't think people could understand. Uh, you are paralyzed the same way the paralytic man was sitting there on his bed, feeling like nobody related or understood or like maybe people would give up on them. I saw doctors and therapists. I was told that I should leave my job and that the pain and scars would probably never go away. There's some encouragement from the world for you. That wasn't really an option. I can't really do much else. <laughs> I mean, I got a family to feed. You know what I mean? I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and tried to lay it down at the altar dozens of times, and it didn't work. I just struggled in silence. 
afraid that others would think that I was broken. As soon as people figured it out, then they wouldn't want anything to do with me anymore. So it was kind of a scary situation to be in. Uh, uh, real challenging to walk through life like that, and it lasted years. So I sympathize with Aeneas. He's in a condition that was visible to everyone. There was no hiding it. It was out there for everybody to see. Bedridden, paralyzed, broken, hurting for eight years with no end in sight. I'm sure people told him just to give up and stop caring, stop praying about it. You haven't been healed yet. You know, you're probably not going to be. I'm sure everybody gave up on him. Maybe he gave up on himself by now. Maybe like me, he had cried out to God for healing and hadn't had his prayer answered yet. Psalms 34, 15 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears hear and are open to their cry. God hears your prayers. He hears your cries. Maybe there's things you need to learn through your sacrifice, through your moments. God can grow you through your hardships. Maybe his plan for you is to not heal you right away. Um, Just to let you be a living testimony of what it's like to walk through trauma and hardship knowing that God is your provider and your hope at the end of the day. It's easy to look at physical disabilities and empathize and pray for their miracle. It's much more difficult for others to see us and for, uh, uh, for us to address our own sin and brokenness. It's easy to say, I'll pray for you, but then not want people to know what's going on with you to give them the opportunity to pray for you as well. Without Jesus, we're just walking wounded, just waiting for death. What good is that? Now let's look at verse 34. In verse 34, it says, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. This this isn't the first time that Peter had healed a man who couldn't walk in the name of Jesus. He did it earlier in the book of Acts in chapter 3. Let's look at that real quick. So in Acts chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, This is Peter. Peter said this, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and he lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So everyone sees this man leaping and praising God, and it creates an audience for Peter to share the gospel. Have you ever noticed that throughout the biblical record that miracles happen in order to create an audience for people to hear the gospel? Because if it was all about the healings and all about the miracles, then when Jesus came, he would just set up shop somewhere and just spend all day healing everybody's illnesses. But he didn't. He healed some people, but he didn't heal others. And why? Because the miracles drew people in to hear the important part of it, which is Jesus Christ came to save our souls and give us salvation. We could walk our whole lives in pain and trauma knowing that Jesus Christ will give us a new body when we get to heaven. Let's put it in perspective. Our lives are but a a snowflake in what we've seen this week. And salvation is the ultimate goal. Now, as you probably, if you remember this story, the man goes into the temple leaping and praising and all the religious leaders of the day are pretty freaked out because it kind of pokes holes in what they're trying to create. 
but everybody has to turn and see. They knew the man who had uh, been paralyzed, who is now healed, and there's no denying what Peter's saying is true, which is Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. Let's look at Acts chapter 4, verse 10. It says, Let me clearly state to all of you and all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. I I really like Peter. I think he's my favorite one. And I think it's because he is just so blunt and straightforward. I think that uh, Peter likes to fail forward. So many people like to hold back and they're afraid of what will happen. But Peter strikes me as the kind of guy who doesn't really think about what's gonna happen. He just does it. And so he's talking to all the religious leaders of the day who murdered Jesus. He already knows this. And he's saying, you guys murdered Jesus, the savior of the universe. But he ra- God raised him from the dead With, without a care in the world about what they were gonna do to him for doing this. Peter's the best. Peter understands, though, that the healing power is not from him, but through him. Jesus is the healer. Peter is just the vessel. It's the same Holy Spirit power that lives inside of every believer. So if you believe in Jesus Christ and you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, that's the same Holy Spirit that Peter and Paul and the others used to heal people and make limbs grow out and raise people from the dead. Do you realize that? Because if you realize that, you'd be pretty psyched right now. Like that is a big deal that the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of you is the same Holy Spirit that raised the dead. It's the same one. I think of it like this. Uh, the vessel is the created thing and the creator stores his treasure inside of it. That's the deal. So it made me think of this. Like when you're out in the mission field, um, it, what's surprising, well, it's surprising to the rest of the world, but we can drink water out of every faucet in our house. We had a, an older couple from Kenya uh, stay with us and um, they had never been to America before. They were in their 60s. And the wife was just taken back by the idea that you could drink any of this water from the hose, from the sink, from the faucet. It was blowing her mind because you may not understand this, but in almost all the rest of the world, you can't drink the water. And so you have to have something like this. It's called a life straw. Basically, this is a water bottle that has this, watch this. Oh, look at that. Technology. So this thing is a filter. So you put it in there. You can fill it with any kind of the nastiest water ever, and you can drink it right through that filter. So the power of Christ is like that filter inside of you that has all, without that filter, it's just a super expensive water. It's like a $45 water bottle without that filter inside of it. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you that takes something that is just a cheap vessel and turns it into something powerful that gives out living water. Amen? John chapter 14, verse 12 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. So why do I lack confidence that God will answer my prayers then? Do you think of that? Maybe you ask yourself the same question. If Jesus said greater things you will do than I did, and he was the son of God, 
and you see the apostles healing people. I think it was Peter who actually walked, or, or Paul who walked through a crowd and people were healed by his shadow. If he says, greater things will you do, and you have the same Holy Spirit they had, then why do I not believe that my prayers will be the ones that get answered? Why do I pray sometimes and say things like, God's will be done at the end of the prayer? Kind of like hedging my bets to say basically, like, if it doesn't happen, well, it must be God's will. Of course it's God's will. It's always God's will. But don't say that so you feel less foolish if the prayer doesn't come true. James chapter 5 verse 16 says, The effective prayers of a righteous man avail much. Watching the apostles wield the power of the Holy Spirit, I should be asking myself, why not my prayers? If it happened for them, then it could happen for me. Why do I pray like I don't think it could happen? It could. Now, if it doesn't, that's fine. The, the outcome is not on me. The outcome's on God. But my faith should be one of their faith that says the Holy Spirit inside of me can do amazing things if I would just believe it, amen? Peter doesn't pray to Jesus that Jesus would heal Aeneas. Peter speaks with the power and authority of Jesus. He does this as one having authority to act, not one who's asking permission. You have authority to act. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. You don't have to say, well, I wonder if it's Jesus's, Jesus doesn't want to do this. No, you know his word and you know his will. So walk in the authority that Christ has given you, amen? Now, I cried out in prayer many, many times, and Jesus did heal me completely. It just took a while. I'm still with the fire department. I still run a fire engine. I still respond to emergency calls. I do all of that, and I'm good. As a pastor and as a veteran and as a first responder, I feel like I'm an example to other veterans that I go on the mission field with and other firefighters that I work with that true healing comes through Jesus. Now, I used to hide it because I thought that my counterparts would think that I was broken if, I, uh, if they knew I was struggling with that. But you know what? They don't. They didn't. I, I, remember I, talked to the, I remember I talked to the person who was with me on that really bad call that I was talking about earlier that I won't describe for you. And they had no idea that I was going through that. And then as I started talking to all the people on that call, other people were dealing with the same thing and we were able to work together in that. So when they say, well, what happened and how did you get over it? Because some of them are retired now. Uh, they had to retire. Um, I tell them it's because of Jesus Christ and the power of his healing. And it creates this opportunity for ministry that would not exist before. If I hadn't gone through the struggle, then I wouldn't have had to be healed and then I wouldn't have the opportunity to minister to other people about how God is a healer, amen? Verse 34, the second part of verse 34 says, uh, Peter says, arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. I was reading a story by Admiral William H. McRaven. Have you heard of Admiral William H. McRaven? He's a commander of the United States Special Operations Command. He's retired and a decorated Navy SEAL. Um, he had this terrible parachuting accident when he was a much younger man that almost took his life. So basically what happened is they were, you know, out doing routine jumps, jumping out of planes, and he jumped out, and as they jumped out, the person below him opened up his parachute, 
And so when you open up your parachute, if you've never done this before, who's jumped out of a plane before? I did five times, five jump, jump. I got the little wings. I felt special. They're in the shadow box now. So the parachute opens very rapidly, and very rapidly, you just slow to a, you know, I mean, relatively a stop, considering you're probably following, falling at like, what is it, uh, 22 feet per second? That's pretty fast. So the admiral is coming down, and the guy opens his chute underneath him, and he bounds right into the chute, which is like hitting an airbag at 100 miles an hour. So now he's disoriented, uh, just all broken up. So he tries to deploy his chute, does no idea how far he's fallen, and it gets wrapped up in him, tangled up in him. So the chute deploys, and the cords are pulling him apart, and he's getting super injured, uh, but he lives through it. He lives through it. He almost dies, um, and it, he's left with these traumatic injuries that leave him bedridden for, for many, many months. And he said this, when I finally was well enough to lift myself unaided from the bed, the first thing I did was pull the sheets up tight and adjust the pillow and make sure that the hospital bed looked presentable to all those who would enter my home. It was my way of showing that I had conquered the injury and was moving forward with my life. Now, if you were in the military, you know that making up your bed is, one, is like the first thing you do in the morning. You wake up, you make your bed, you make it all nice and neat, especially when you're in the training phase, any training phase, really. So he's saying that he was injured and he couldn't get out of bed. So as soon as he could get out of bed, the first thing he wanted to do was make the bed. How long had it been since he could make the bed? Such a simple thing, something we take for granted all the time. Such a small victory that he was so excited about because he had been broken and now he was better. Do you see what I'm saying here? You have Peter heal Ananias and the first thing he does is he says, make your bed. Because an unmade bed is too easy to slip back into. It's too easy just to walk back to it and say, ah, I was more comfortable there. There was less pressure there. People didn't really know what was going on there. And he was excited about being able to make his bed. I do this every shift at the firehouse. Some guys don't. It kind of drives me crazy a little bit, and I guess I could tell them to change their ways. But the reality to me, it's really more of a mindset than an action. The first thing I do is when I wake up is I pull the sheets up, I tuck them in, and I make the bed. And I leave my bunk room door open all day long. Why? I don't know. I think I'm just excited to be able to get out of bed in the morning. I think I'm excited that even though I know that there is pain and trauma uh, potential every day that I'm still there and I'm healed and I'm ready for the day. It's funny, sometimes you get woke up in the middle of the night to go on an emergency call and I wake up and I'm like, oh, we gotta go on a call. And the first thing I do is I reach down like I'm gonna make my bed. I'm like, you can wait, I'm coming back. Hopefully I'm coming back and be able to climb back into bed before morning actually hits. But not everybody does that. So much of my day is out of my control. He, so some people feel this great sense of calm, thinking that they're in control of things. And they would be petrified if they realized how little control you actually have. You have so little control of what happens in your life on a daily basis. I mean, just look at this week. I mean, how many plans got thrown off this week? So you got COVID, you got daily testing, you got people trying to fly, you got snow everywhere, thousands of flight canceled. I mean, five, six years ago, 
You'd be upset if your plane was 50 minutes delayed, and now all of a sudden people are sleeping in airports, they're stranded in places, they're getting COVID tested one day, and their plane's canceled, and then they have to get it again because now you got to get it before you go on the plane. You have no control over any of this. So little control. One of the biggest examples of lack of control, and I guess it's because I'm a first responder, so I've seen many, many car accidents, is that you're driving down the road at 55 miles an hour, and someone's coming straight at you at 55 miles an hour, and the only thing keeping you safe is a yellow piece of paint in the middle of the road. And you're perfectly fine with that. You're calm. You might be texting with one hand, playing with the radio with the other, thinking about where you're going to stop for coffee, because that little piece of paint is protecting you. It's not. You have so little control. My day when I go to work, I could get there and go on the worst call of my entire life, or I could sit behind the computer doing online training all day. I have no idea what I'm going to run into. I could show up at 7.30 in the morning to start my shift at 8 o'clock and jump on a call for somebody else at 7.45, and it could be a horrific thing. It could be a minor thing. You know my favorite calls are? In the middle of the night when you just go pick some old lady up and put them back in their bed. I love those calls. You're the hero. You get to show up. They're on the ground. They can't get up. They've fallen. They can't get up. And you get to just pick them. Are you okay? Is everything okay? Here, let me put you back. Can I tuck you in? Do you need anything? And then you go home and you sleep all night. It's so great. No drama. You just feel good about yourself but you never know if that's what you're gonna get or not. And in our lives, it's so much like that, as you just don't know what you're gonna get from a day-to-day basis. Things come out of nowhere. I mean, I could talk, so for me, knowing that I have no control actually makes me feel more comfortable. Why? Because if I don't have control, I don't have responsibility for those things. I'm not responsible for what happens out there. I can't control it. You know what I am responsible for? What happens in here? You can control the way you respond to things. You're responsible for the way you respond to things. You're responsible for clinging to the Lord in your hardship and not pushing it all the way and making bad choices. So much less to worry about. You're responsible for not being a victim in your circumstances. There's no reason for that. The Bible says that Aeneas rose immediately His life became a testimony because Jesus healed him. Imagine if Peter came there and said, arise immediately, and he was like, eh, I don't know. I'm afraid of what people might think if they see me. I'll have a lot of explaining to do. Eight years he's been down, but he didn't. He arose immediately. Why? Because his life was changed by the power of Jesus Christ, and he was okay with other people knowing about it. Are you okay with people knowing that Jesus Christ has changed your life? You should be. It's a big deal. Only God can turn a mess into a message, a test into a testimony, a trial into a triumph, and a victim into a victory. This is what I've learned. If that if you aren't trusting Jesus in everything, you aren't really trusting him in anything. I mean, think about it. Were you trusting him 90%? You can trust him that that, uh, he can protect you out on the road, but not that he can heal you? You're saying that God's not a healer? The Bible said God's a healer. So is he, is he or isn't he? Is the Bible true or is it not true? You say you believe the Lord's your provider, but are you afraid of what's gonna happen if you lose your job? Boy, this, this past couple years has given us opportunities 
to cling to the Lord, right? And trust him for our provision and for our healing and for our safety and for our families. What do you have trust in your job or your Jesus? Psalms 34, 18 says this. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. That's a word for you today. That's a word for you today. Psalms 90, verse 10. Those who know his name, uh, those who know your name and trust in you, for you, O Lord, do not abandon those who search for you. You have to give Jesus every part of you, 100%. If you feel like life is not going the way you want it to go, ask yourself, are you trusting Jesus in everything or just some things? Amen? And my last point is this, verse 35. So all who dwelt in Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. A miracle is what you call it when there's no other explainable reason for its occurrence. Like the Big Bang. You will know it was the Lord. It is the confirmation of the message that was preached and it's our hope in Jesus Christ. The healed man's changed lives became a reason why people were willing to listen to the gospel. Because they saw the power of Jesus, they wanted to hear the gospel about Jesus. Because he was healed and willing to show people that Jesus had changed his life, other people will have the opportunity for Jesus to change their lives. Because a changed life changes lives. Psalms 103 verse 2 through 4 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all of your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Let me read that one again. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all of your inequities, who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Amen, pastor, that's good. (laughs) If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, make your bed immediately. The Lord has work for you to do. The Lord has work for you to do. Make your bed and get moving, amen? How, your life of, uh, how you live your life of faith will be an example to others that Jesus is real and changes lives. That's one thing I like about this church immediately is that you're not coming in here playing games. You're not trying to pretend like it's something it isn't. So often over the past couple decades, the church has created this scenario where they're trying to look just like the world, thinking that that's gonna draw the world in. And then when the world gets in here, then they're gonna like bait and switch them. It's like, no, 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 we're just here for community. Just come get your coffee and hang out. It's, it's just a safe place for you to be and we'll just accept you no matter what. And then when you get here, they're like, oh yeah, and there's this whole Bible and we expect something from you. And we expect you to give up everything for Jesus Christ. And they're like, hey, this isn't what I came here for. But a church like this, a church like Faith and Victory is one that says, no, no, no. I'm gonna let you know right up front, Jesus Christ wants to change your life. He wants you to be different when you leave here than when you came in here. And what we've found and what you're finding or you will find too is that that's what people are looking for. They don't even know it yet, but what they're looking for is to have their life changed. So if they don't see how Jesus has changed your life, why on earth would they wanna come here and see what's going on at your church? They're not gonna want to. They already have everything they could possibly want out there in the world. 
They don't want that. They want Christ. They just don't know it yet. And you get to be the one to help them figure that out. Amen? And if you're in here and you're a seeker, here's the thing too, is that at the same way that we hide who we are inside sometimes and that we hide our pain and our trauma, sometimes we hide the fact that we've been living in doubt and we haven't really given our life to Jesus Christ yet. It's hard, man. You come into a church and everybody else acts like they got it together and everybody else seems like they're all on board and you're inside feeling like, I don't think I got it all figured out yet. I I don't know if I really buy into this stuff yet, but I want to. I'm just afraid to show people that I may not be all the way on the inside. And if that's you today, you're just seeking, what else is it that you need for you to believe today? You got miracles, you got testimonies, you got all of nature itself to let you know that Christ is real. My last verse is this, Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power is Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You're without excuse today. Make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior today, amen? Let's close in prayer. First though, you know, and I don't know if you guys do this, but this is what I want to do. You know, this is a safe space. You know, we all love each other. The Holy Spirit is here. I want to do this. If you don't, if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you haven't truly given your life over, him to, over to him today, if you had been walking, uh, if you had been pretending and walking through life like walking wounded, and now you're like, nope, I'm ready to make Jesus Christ my all in all, 100% give him everything. You get saved for the very first time. If that's you, I don't even know any of you. That's the brilliance of it. If that's you for the very first time, everybody bow your heads and close your eyes. If you want to give your life to Jesus Christ for the very first time today, never done it before at all, why don't, could you just raise your hand and tell me that's you today? Jesus Christ is going to change your life today. That's you. If you're in this place and you're seeking, I would encourage you to talk to other people in this church and find out more about what Jesus Christ is doing here and the commitment of giving your life to Christ today. And for the rest of us, make your beds. Let's move on. Let's share Christ with others. Let's bring people to this holy place so that they can come to know the Father as well. Let's pray. Lord God, I love you so much, Lord Jesus. I pray that I wasn't a distraction from you bringing uh, a word to your people, Lord Jesus. I pray that uh, it was received corporately but also individually, Lord. I pray that you spoke to your people. I pray that we could leave this place different than when we came in. God, change our lives day to day. Fill us with your Holy Spirit day to day so we can walk out your mission in love. Amen. Amen. Uh, You can stand, please. We have one more song before we go and one more opportunity to worship.